Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Chris Crane. And Chris is co-founder and president of Forefront. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that company and what they're doing in the cannabis space. But Chris has a long background in cannabis, and he has been uh, involved in NORML, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, as an associate director. He's also been with the Students for Sensible Drug Policy as an executive director. We're going to find out a little bit more about that. Chris, I'm excited to have you on. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start, uh, just because you have a, a fairly long background in cannabis, let's hear a little bit of the story. How did you get originally involved in cannabis? And tell us about some of your earlier involvement in the industry. Sure. So, um, you know, this is an issue that I, I thought a lot about since I was fairly young. My, my father was a medical marijuana patient uh, when uh, when I was quite young. He passed away when I was eight years old. And, yeah. and that was something that really sort of stuck with me as I got older, particularly as I started going through, uh, you know, it was basically New York City's version of the DARE program at the time yeah. in the you know in the 80s and early 90s and and sort of realizing that that did not that did not comport with my experience and having seen the way that medical cannabis had helped my own father sure and also just you know it got me thinking a lot about the way that we the way that we approach drugs and drug use in this country I had seen you know the really devastating impact of, of substance abuse you know in addition to the really beneficial impacts of medical cannabis and so you know just thought thought about this issue a lot at a fairly young age and so when I got to college I became somewhat of an activist for drug policy reform uh, got involved with the local normal chapter mm-hmm. my campus normal chapter which became one of the first chapters of students for sensible drug policy. And that led to a job at Normal, basically right after college, where I, I served as the associate director for about six years, or sort of worked my way up to that position over those six years. Mm-hmm. 
and then was hired back at Students for Sensible Drug Policy in 2006, uh, okay. where I, I ran that organization as the executive director for four years, uh, helped grow it into you know what's now the, the largest, uh, we believe, the largest student organization in the United States, certainly the largest single issue student organization in the United States. And it's become a real global force. I'm really proud of what that organization's accomplished, yeah. both while I was there and in the, in the 10 years since I left. I still stay, still stay involved. I'm still the treasurer of the, uh, of the organization at the board level. And uh, so really, it was, it was, it's always been this motivation to help bring about a more reasonable, rational, sensible drug policy that's kept me going professionally, right? First as an advocate, and now for the last 10 years as, uh, as a member of the industry. Um, yeah. and, and it was really that desire uh, to help change our laws that motivated me to get involved or move, I should say, from being a professional advocate to being in the industry. I, I started to see the way that the industry itself, and this was very, very early on, right, 2009, mm-hmm. In the early industry, especially at that point in Northern California, where you had some of the best run, most professional uh, retail dispensaries in the country, the, the way that that was really helping to change public perception about cannabis in particular and cannabis distribution and what that could and should look like, you know, breaking down stereotypes that people have had drilled into them from the time they were quite young yeah. about what cannabis distribution looks like into something that they can actually you know see, feel, touch right as part of their community, whether they, they whether they're a consumer or a patient or not. Right? These are these are not operations that they're going to be ashamed to have in their communities. In fact, in many cases, they're going to see real benefits in the, in the community, even if they don't directly interact with those stores on a day-to-day basis. And it just really dawned on me that what was happening with the, this early industry was going to do as much, if not more, to help advance our advocacy goals as the work I had been doing as a professional policy advocate. And that was really the, the motivation for making that jump from you know, full-time advocacy to full-time industry. Yeah. It's, and you really got involved early. I mean, we're talking you know late 90s, early 2000s. You know, I guess, you know, California had its medical program, which was pretty limited. But, you know, this was pre-Colorado, pre-California going, you know, adult use. I mean, (laughs) was this, did you imagine at that point, you know, in the early 2000s that we would be at this point? Or is this, I guess, how has this played out for you? So in the early 2000s, no, it would be hard to imagine that, you know, the conversations we'd be having 15 years later or so would be around, you know, the right ways to legalize it would be around, you know, making legalization more inclusive of communities that have been disproportionately harmed by marijuana prohibition about tax rates, right? What's the right yeah. way to tax things? What's the right licensing schemes and licensing structures? How do public markets properly value you know, multi-state cannabis operators. Like these were not conversations that were even really fathomable at that point. I mean, we yeah. were we were largely playing defense outside of passing the early medical marijuana medical marijuana laws at the state level, which was all done through ballot initiatives. Much like these early uh, legalization laws have also yeah. been done through ballot initiatives. You know, we were winning ballot initiatives on medical marijuana around the country, but outside of that, we were largely playing defense. And so to think that we'd be having these conversations, they, they just weren't really fathomable yeah. uh, back then. It was a it was a very different time. We were having very different discussions, very different thoughts. So the thoughts about how do you regulate an industry and the t- types of things that we're talking about now, all very important conversations were just, it just was not part of the conversation back then. Yeah. Well, and I think that some of this, at least some of the conversations I've had around the kind of legalization is that it's actually been a challenge for, for folks that were involved in the industry, you know, previously that the new kind of the, the regulations, the processes, the the licensing and all that kind of stuff has actually, in some respects, you know, hurt the 
the earlier cannabis industry, cannabis market, cannabis culture. I mean, what is that? As someone who was was around, <laughs> kind of in the earlier days, you know, involved with this, with the industry, with the community, how have you seen that group kind of affected or impacted by this kind of wave of regulation changes and and legalization? Well, I think it depends on who we're talking about. So, you know, if you're talking about the the activists, the advocates, or the people who've been around for a long time, you know, I would argue that the the emergence of the industry has been a net benefit. Okay. Uh, right. There's a lot more. There's a lot more capital or a lot more money in cannabis today than there was 10, 15 years ago, largely because of legalization, right? We brought people into the movement who, many of whom got in because they saw financial opportunity to get involved in the industry. Yeah. And, you know, in many cases, those folks become advocates, right? Because they're exposed to all this. They start meeting patients. They really start, they really get the bigger picture and they become advocates because they genuinely start to care when it's not that they didn't necessarily care before, but it just wasn't really something they thought about. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and they wind up supporting reform and donating money and donating time. And then you also have folks who get involved because they see it as a financial opportunity. They don't really get, you know, the full breadth of, you know, the social justice implications and, and, and uh, you know, just, just overall political implications. It really yeah. is just to make money. But by and large, those folks end up supporting reform efforts anyway, because it's good for their bottom line, right? Because in order to open up more markets, you've got to legalize in more states. Yeah. And, and so they wind up donating or, or doing things that are supportive of reform. You know, we've got way more lobbyists in Washington, D.C. working <laughs> yeah. on cannabis issues, which is, a, I mean, look, it's a good yeah. thing, right? If you want to get laws changed in D.C., you need powerful lobbying firms. And so, yeah. you know, now in addition to having a SSDP and normal and MPP and DPA and Americans for Safe Access, right? All the groups that had been there for for years, but you also have groups like the National Cannabis Industry Association, the Cannabis Trade Federation. You've got some of the larger companies in the space that have their own lobbyists that are working in DC, and by and large. All of these groups and all these lobbyists are working with one another and coordinating with one another. So that that wasn't possible before the industry itself. The folks, though, that I do worry about and that, that have gotten kind of the raw end of this deal are a lot of the early pioneers of the early medical marijuana industry. Yeah. Now, while some have done quite well, right, I mean, you could point to folks like, uh, you know, Steve D'Angelo or the guys from Denver Relief. Mm-hmm. Right, there definitely are some of these early pioneers, the guys from Spark and Peace and Medicine and Berkeley Patients Group has survived and done really well. So some of these earlier players have done quite well. A lot of the earlier players have really struggled because, you know, those are the early days of this industry were very gray market. Yeah. And I would say fairly dark shade of gray in many cases. Yep. And a lot of these folks, I would say, especially on the cultivation side and this, you know, the smaller to medium sized growers in California in particular, this has been a big issue, have had a really hard time transitioning from the you know the, the illicit market or the gray market mm-hmm. into this new legal market and you know some of that is is that these, these some of these folks just did not have the business acumen or the ability to navigate an increasingly complex regulatory environment and some of it is the regulatory frameworks that have been put in place in a lot of these states have you know have basically made it so that these smaller players are going to really struggle right that they that they're yeah. particularly in some of these more eastern markets that are you know typically have uh, uh, typically have really restrictive licensing structures and a small number of licenses and highly competitive application processes that cost a lot of money to go through and require a lot of expertise it's just really hard for any smaller business operator or mom and pop type operator to come in and compete in one of those processes with you know, with some of these you know bigger money, better financially positioned, more sophisticated players. Yeah. So it's, it really is a combination. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, we're in this funny position, you know, on the state by state level, it's kind of, uh, at some level, it's the ultimate 
uh, American experiment you know, with with states kind of creating their own frameworks and rules and uh, licensing systems and things like that. But it's also it's it creates a lot of inconsistency and diversity across the you know the legalized states. What do you see as being the trend right now with the kind of you know upcoming North? East Coast or Northeast, you know, states that are all kind of uh, poised to go legal or poised to to pass various legislations. What, what is the big change that you're seeing as these states start to go legal from the earlier states, particularly out west and Colorado? What's what's the change in structure that you see them kind of implementing, or the regulatory system you see them implementing? It's going to vary from state to state. You know, we're entering a very different time period here than we've seen over the last few years, where, as I mentioned, all of the, the full legalization laws that have been put in place today have, have been passed by ballot initiative, which means that the, the laws have largely been written by the activists, by the advocates, which in many ways, I would say, probably in most ways, I would say, has been a positive, right? Because mm-hmm. the people who really care about these laws have gotten to write it. Yep. In some ways, it's been kind of negative. I think, you know, so in a lot of these, particularly the earlier ballot initiatives, there was a lot of fear about going too far in the language and that that might turn off voters and cause an initiative to lose. And so in most of these, in most of the laws that have passed today, right, you don't have things like strong social equity provisions that I think you are going to see in the next wave um, because you're, you're looking at a lot of states that have uh, very diverse populations that are looking at passing these things to the legislature. You're just not going to be able to get the votes there. Yeah. Sorry, um, explain explain that a little bit more for folks. When, when you say the social equity initiatives, what, what are we referring to? So we're talking about provisions within the laws that, that provide a pathway for inclusion in the industry mm-hmm. for people who have people in communities that have been disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition. And so in Massachusetts, for example, this was not in the law that was originally passed. There was some there were some references to it in the law, but it was actually strengthened by the legislature and later by the, the new Cannabis Control Commission. They, they they give priority in licensing to people from people from from neighborhoods that have been you know, disproportionately harmed by prohibition, right, where there's a disproportionate number of arrests to anybody who has a, a prior conviction for a cannabis offense yeah. um, and for people of color in general, because uh, mm-hmm. communities of color have, have been you know, disproportionately impacted by uh, marijuana enforcement. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying to provide pathways for for, you know, for opportunities to get involved in the industry for these folks. Also things like expungement. Right? Yeah, expungement I was curious, what, what is your take on that? Do you think that's an effective way to remedy some of these social issues? I think it's absolutely necessary. And uh, and, and I would say you know, it's, it's sort of a moral imperative that we, you know, that we expunge in these in these laws, you know, if we're going to say, look, that we're going to now license people to go out and make a living, potentially make millions of dollars on you know, on, on, on this type of behavior, yeah. we can't have people who engage in similar behavior still, you know, still being hampered by yeah, you know, all, the all the negative things that come with having a criminal record. And that, you know, and that was not something that was not included in a lot of these early initiatives because the you know the activists thought that that it would scare off voters I and mean, that we would lose the entire thing. Right. And so the, those are the kind of things I think that we're going to see more of, especially in this next wave, because you look at the next wave of states that are going to pass legalization. It's states like Illinois, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut. Right. These are these are very diverse states with, yeah. uh, in, you know, in many cases, very strong you know, legislative black caucuses and Latino caucuses that will just not pass legalization without these things included. Yeah. On the flip side, I think you're going to see much more restrictive regulatory regimes coming out of the, the state legislatures where they have to cut deals with more conservative members of their legislature in order to get these things passed. So I think unlike the states that we've seen so far, you're likely to see more restrictive licensing. So fewer licenses. Um, you know, So far, every legalization state has no cap on the number of licenses. Um, it's more of a free market approach, although I would say a state like Massachusetts has sort of an artificial cap. 
um, because they give too much deference to the locals in the licensing process, which allows a lot of local jurisdictions to opt out and a licensing process that takes a really long time and is really bureaucratic and challenging. um, That's going to limit that, that will end up limiting the overall number, but it's not like there's a cap. Um, and, but I think in some of these newer states, if I look at states, you know, particularly like Illinois and New Jersey, my guess is that the final legislation that comes out of that will have some kind of license cap. Those license cap caps do generally tend to favor the wealthier, more well-connected, uh, companies, um, that are then able to, you know, compete for these limited, you know, these limited numbers of licenses. And Mm -hmm. these processes then become inherently more political and companies that have better political contexts are are generally better positioned to win licenses than those that don't. Um, and so I think we're going to see, more restri- you know, more restrictive licensing. We may see more restrictive regulations around things like edibles and packaging um, than you know than, than we've seen in some of the some of the earlier states. So there'll be a trade-off uh, between the way things have been done through uh, ballot initiative states and and these new this new wave that I I think is going to kick off this year. Um, I'd be very surprised if we don't have the first state fully legalized sometime this year. Yeah. Right. But, but I think those laws are going to look a little different in some of the ways we talked that they just mentioned than you know than what we saw in the you know in that first wave that were done through through the initiative process. Yeah. And, and when we sort of ponder this you know, eventual, hopefully eventual federal federal change in law to to legalize, how is this going to cause a kind of a revamp, you know, across the states? Or do you think states will continue to have their own uh, kind of processes in place even even with a, a federal legalization well that's a, that, i mean that's a that's a million dollar question i don't think anybody really knows the answer to that yet um because it depends on what federal legalization looks like yeah. i don't i don't think we really know at this point what federal legalization is likely to look like um you know, I, I think there's a decent chance that it starts out as something like the states act Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I would not call the States Act legalization, right? The States Act is basically recognizing the status quo, but leaving it as largely a state by state industry. Yeah. Um, so and I, I, I do think there's a good chance that whenever we we have eventual legalization at the federal level, that they that they may provide some serious deference to the states mm-hmm. uh, to determine how they want to regulate within those states. I don't think it I don't think we necessarily are going to see the system just open up massively to the point where there's, you know, all kinds of interstate commerce, like right away, that may take time to roll out. They Mm, may let the states decide, you know, how they want to do that. And that gets really interesting if that's, if that winds up being the case, right? If they do defer to the states, at least in the earlier days, because I think you're going to have different states that have very different uh, concerns and priorities. So I can lay out sort of three, like three different, you know, three different scenarios that you may see play out within that sort of state deferential system, you know, a state like Oregon or California, right. Oregon, Washington, California, right. All the West coast Mm -hmm. states, or I would say Oregon is sort of the poster child for this that has a massive excess of cannabis that they can barely, they can't really sell (laughs) on the the domestic market, right. They're domestic, you know, within this, within the state. Um, you know, they're desperate for export markets, right? They're going to want to become an exporter, right? An interstate exporter yep. and, and well, and, you know, and international, yeah, international just, yeah. just within, within the country, right? Like they're going to want to start sending their product everywhere. You could also see, you could also see other states, right? There are a bunch of states that haven't even passed medical marijuana yet that are quite conservative, that don't have ballot initiatives that will need to pass their, 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 you know, that will need to pass medical marijuana laws through the state legislature, Mm-hmm. Um, or even early legalization laws, if they're if they're mandated to do so by Congress, um, that probably are not going to want to regulate 
production and are not really going to want it grown in their state. Mm-hmm. Right? That may scare them off. And so I could see a state like you can see states like, say, you know, Utah or uh, South Dakota, although they have a ballot initiative process, probably not the best best example. But, you know, Utah <laughs> or Kansas or yep. Nebraska or right, Kentucky, right? These states that don't have it yet that are just like, yeah, we would just rather get all of our stuff from Oregon. Yeah. Right? We don't want to deal with any of this. Nope. We don't want to deal with regulating it, overseeing it. And so you may have states that become quote unquote exporter states within, you know, within interstate commerce. You may have some that become importer states. And then you may have a state, I would look at a state like Illinois, where you've got currently 19 cultivators for a state of almost 13 million people. Yeah. They are made up of some of the largest multi-state companies in the in the industry. Uh, right. So you've got companies like like Grassroots and GTI and Cresco and Columbia Care and MedMen and Pharmacan, right? All of those are, are here in Illinois, uh, mm-hmm. where, where I'm, I'm currently living, mm-hmm. that are lobbying really hard to not expand the number of cultivators in the state once legalization hits. And a lot of these folks are very well connected within the state because they're, they're domiciled here. Right? They, they have experience here even before legalization, have a lot of money, have a lot mm-hmm. of power, and may convince the legislature to give them some kind of limited oligopoly overproduction within the state. I could see a state like that saying, you know what? We're not allowing anything from out of state into our into our state borders. It's got to stay 100 percent within the state of Illinois. Everything produced here, grown here, sold here, right, because they may be looking out for the interests of some of these larger companies. Yeah. I'm not predicting that's exactly how it will go, but I can absolutely foresee a scenario where yeah. you know a state like Illinois or maybe a New York that has a more restrictive licensing program, a Minnesota that already has a more restrictive licensing program kind of keep them that way and want to keep everything in house and don't want to provide competition to their existing, you know, very well off businesses. So you you could have a whole range of ways in which the states deal with these, uh, uh, deal with this issue of uh, just, just this issue of import export. Yeah. And I think that's what makes this industry so, you know, both challenging as well as compelling for entrepreneurs and, and business folks, you know, is that knowing the kind of intricacies and the ins and outs of regulation and, and state by state kind of politics creates these kind of niches and these, these opportunities to, to create businesses or establish businesses, grow businesses. And, and even with federal legalization, it doesn't mean that it's going to create this universal playing field you're still, I think you're right. You're still going to have this kind of state by state nuance, you know, either, you know, in, in subtle forms or or not so subtle forms in terms of what's allowed and, and what the policies and processes are going to be. Let's talk a little bit about this kind of multi-state operator, uh, you know, and a little bit what we're doing with Forefront. I mean, I, I guess just for folks to kind of baseline them a little bit, you know, right now, all, all of the cannabis production, processing and dispensing needs to happen, you know, within a state. Because you know federal laws, you can't have interstate commerce on these things, but you can you can kind of develop business models and operational models that can go from state to state, and, and that's the idea behind these multi-state operators. What give us a little more insight in terms of what a multi-state operator is and how they kind of approach the business given this kind of legal framework? Yeah, so the, you have seen over the last couple of years really the emergence of what are now commonly referred to as multi-state operators or MSOs. We've seen that term sort of largely adopted, uh, particularly within the finance community, and and these are the companies that have managed to successfully navigate the state by state regulatory environment and go out and either win licenses in multiple states or 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 acquire licenses in multiple states. And in most cases, it's a combination. Uh, companies have won some in some states, they've gone out and acquired in other states. You've seen what I would call the sort of the first wave of, of industry consolidation, where you have a lot of these multi-state operators that have been just buying up mom and pops all over the country. 
and, and expanding their footprint that way. And, and and these companies typically have access to capital that uh, that you know that most operators in the space don't have. Right? Either they they started out that way, or they grew large enough that they're able to attract more capital. These are also the the companies that by and large are going public, mm-hmm. all up in Canada, uh, or almost all up in Canada on the on the uh, Canadian Securities Exchange. And so they have access to public currency, the valuations on the public markets for multi-state operators tends to be, you know, tends to be pretty high. And that gives them access to, you know, cheaper currency and less dilutive capital when they go out and raise money. And so you're, what you're starting to see really are, you know, a dozen or so, maybe a little bit more than a dozen or so companies that have really emerged as the dominant players in the United States that are going to be, I think, really difficult for smaller operators to compete with moving forward because they have, they just have, they have so much more capital and access to so much more capital and they've proven an operating model, right? They've been able to go into very different regulatory environments in different states and operate successfully, um, or in some cases successfully, in some cases, they just have the licenses and that's been enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so really, I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. But I mean, that, that's really been the trend, I think, over the last couple of years has been this emergence of multi-state operators. I mean, my company, Forefront, is you know kind of in the middle of that. We shifted from being just a consultant when we started for our first five years to doing direct operations ourselves. Uh, we still do some consulting work, but we have a large division that focuses on operations. And, and we're in the middle of our own fairly large merger uh, right now. We're, we're merging with a company called Canex, which is the parent to the largest operator wholesaler in the state of Washington. Yeah. And uh, you know, we think that's going to you know, massively accelerate our our executional capabilities on the growth process side of things, uh, where we've been traditionally very strong on retail, license expansion, right, license acquisition, capital markets. And they have absolutely dominated in a very, very competitive market in Washington, one of the most competitive in the country. And they have something like eight percent market share in the Washington market yeah. um, on the on the on the wholesale market. And we think that's you know we think that that's really going to help our capability in some of the other states. So when this merger is done, which it will be in the next. Uh, four to six weeks um, will be uh, will be final and complete. We will be in, I believe, nine states, uh, operational in seven and licensed in nine, possibly even ten at that point. And uh, and you know and and so fitting ourselves into that sort of that that universe of of multi-state operators. Yeah, most of the multi-state operators vertically integrated as well. I mean, meaning that you know you're focused on you know the cultivation, the processing, and the dispensing, the retail side of things, or are there multi-state operators that are you know just focusing on on certain parts of that supply chain? By and large, they are all vertically integrated. You know, there are some that have been more focused on retail. I would say put us in that category. Uh, Cureleaf um, has also been, you know, probably led with retail. Most have kind of led with cultivation production, uh-huh. um, and I think they, you know, see their retail stores as distribution channels for their products more than uh, they see retail as you know what they lead with. And so there's a little little bit of a difference there. But by and large. Everyone kind of does everything at this point. Um, and it's just kind of how you have to operate, right? A lot of these states, particularly some of the larger states, mandate vertical integration, right? States like New York, yeah, exactly. Florida, yeah. New Jersey, Illinois doesn't mandate it. Um, but, uh, you know, but there are states that mandate it. Massachusetts up until just recently, um, and they still technically do on the medical side of things. So everybody's kind of had to get good at both sides of things. One thing that I have found interesting, though, on this um, and, and on that note is, yeah. you know, you've seen that this emergence of these larger multi-state operators. And when I met all the companies that I've mentioned are basically all out of the Eastern markets or the limited license markets, right? I mean, the one big exception is MedMen, right? They came out of California. Mm-hmm. And so really more a California-based company, but almost all these other ones come out of the, the more limited license mm-hmm. 
largely east of the Mississippi markets, even a company like Harvest, right, which is Arizona based, Arizona's regulatory environment looks a lot looks more, more like, like East Coast. Yeah. East, yeah, it looks a lot more like yeah. East Coast. So you've got you know, those companies like Harvest and GTI and Cresco and Pharmacan. And uh, as I mentioned, MedMen's sort of the exception, Columbia Care, right? I mean, there's just forefront. Almost all of them are, are based out east. But when you look at what are the, the most or who are the most successful product companies, it's almost all companies coming out of California, Colorado, <laughs> Oregon, yeah. Washington, right? Yeah. The, which, and I think part of that is because they've had to succeed in hyper-competitive markets. These larger multi-state operators have not, right? Because they've yeah. largely been protected in their markets. And so yeah. they have to produce well and they can produce efficiently, but they don't have to be great. They don't have to be super efficient. They don't have to be better than everybody else in their states because there's more than enough room in the market for everybody with a limited number of licenses. But you want to be a successful product manufacturer in California, Colorado, Washington, right? In these states, these Western states, you got to be able to compete in hyper competitive markets. And so I think one of the trends that we're we're starting to see, and I think will accelerate over the course of the next couple of years, and frankly, this is this was the forefront 10x merger that I was just talking about, mm-hmm. are these these better capitalized East Coast domiciled companies that are really good at navigating public markets and really good at winning and acquiring licenses acquiring brands from yeah. the West Coast that have been able to operate really efficiently and win out in those markets and then bringing those brands to these other more limited markets. And like that was you know that was our impetus behind the Canex merger. It was a little different than some of the other mergers we've seen in the space where it's been sort of matching dots on a map. Um, yeah. so I'd look at like the you know the Pharmacan MedMen merger or the Ianthus MPX merger, both of which make a lot of sense. Right? And it's not to, to denigrate what they were doing. I, I totally get why they did it where you have you know this asset portfolio plus this asset portfolio makes us way bigger and a bigger force. Like that makes sense. But this for us was really about executional capabilities. And hey, these guys out in Washington are executing better than anybody we've seen in the United States, period. Certainly better than, you know, the, than our counterparts in the multi-state operator game. And we think that eventually the way that these companies are, are evaluated and valued is going to be less on how many licenses do you have and more on how are you executing yeah. and how are those licenses performing? And, you know, ultimately we, you know, we, we liken it to, to playing risk versus playing monopoly. Uh, right. Like I think, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think so a lot of, a lot of what you're seeing in the multi-state, the most multi-state operators has been this game of monopoly. It's like collect as put as many dots on the map as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And by and large, that's what the public markets and the public market investors have valued the most. It's how many dots on the map you have and which states, right? Some states are valued much more highly than other states. So, you know, a dot in Florida or a dot in New York is valued a lot more highly than a dot in Oregon or a dot in Washington. But I think that's ultimately going to shift to when I talk about, you know, risk, right? In risk, geography matters, right? Dots on the map matter, yeah. but so does your strategy and so does your ability to execute. Yep. And I think that's the next wave we're going to see here is, okay, yeah, you've got all these assets, but what are you doing with them? And how are you executing those? And what percentage of the market share do you have in your state? Um, and what kind of growth are you seeing? And so we're trying to set ourselves up for that, even if it comes a little bit at the expense of you know adding more dots on the map. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of this is just sort of this general kind of market industry dynamics, you know, in a growing market where product or, or kind of capabilities of solutions are under customer expectations or kind of the market needs, you know, a vertically integrated process tends to work very well because you you can optimize that whole process. But the moment that your products outstrip really what the market kind of demands or needs, then it becomes much more around brand and differentiation. And it feels like that's kind of what's happening at some level, like the, the market is maturing a little bit. And so this brand side, like, can you develop recognizable, trusted brand on the retail side is really, you know, going to drive this next 
this next wave of growth. I mean, because I think it's one of the interesting dynamics in industry is as, as we get more and more kind of expansion of the market, we're bringing in new and potentially very different types of segments and sort of populations and, and personas. How do you see how do you see this playing out as the market kind of matures from kind of these early adopters to you know call it the early early majority <laughs> you know kind of wave of demand? How do you think that's going to change the actual the, the development of the market and the brands and the or the company is going to be successful in this next generation? That's a good question. I, you know, I think we are seeing a, a shift in the overall consumer base, right? I mean, the, the newest entrants into the consumer market are largely in their 30s and 40s, yeah. right? It's not the, you know, 20-something year old, you know, 20-year-old uh, that, you know, people you know, typically associate with cannabis consumers. It's an older crowd. It's a little more sophisticated crowd. It's a crowd that is much less interested in smoking yeah, exactly. um, and by and large more interested in other types of, of administration, methods of administration. Mm-hmm. They're more interested in lower dose products than than like getting dabbed out of your mind. Yeah. Um, right. And there's always going to be a market for that. Yep. Um, and, and it's not, you know, it's not like there, this is where market segmentation is going to is going to really come into play. Like there are going to be companies out there. And I'll give a shout out to a company like Field, uh, you know, Field Extracts out of out of California. And my brother happens to be the COO there. Mm-hmm. You know, Field focuses on really, really high end extracts, right? They sell saucepans that are you know, super strong and, and, and expensive, right? And they can sell $120 gram of sauce yeah. in, you know, in a heavily competitive market in California. And those are always going to exist, but companies like that are playing to, you know, about 5% of the market. Yeah. Um, right now that's that, now that 5% of the market is willing to spend a lot more money than the other 95% of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those businesses, the businesses that can capture that market effectively are going to do really, really well. But that's not where the majority of the industry is going, right? The yeah. majority of industry is going to lower dose products and uh, other modes of administration, not dabbing. So you're, I think you'll see an increase in you know things like tinctures and edibles, and you know certainly vape pens. We've already seen a big increase in those. I think yeah. things like compound formulations are going to be part of this next wave, where you know once you can do extraction on a much larger level, and then you can really isolate down to individual cannabinoids and individual terpenes, yeah. and then reconstitute those in compound formulations to create very specific effects. You know, which you see. Company, you know, company like Ebu that just sold for what six hundred million dollars yeah. <laughs> to uh, right to Canopy yeah. who, without having like really any sales, right? It's because of the IP that they've created around how you create compound formulations. I think a company like Canopy saw that's the wave of the future, yeah. and these guys clearly have done more to try and figure out how you do that effectively than others in the space. They're willing to pay that much money for them, and then that's surprised a lot of people. But I think it's a recognition of partly where the market's going. And then I think on the retail side, I think the retail experience really matters. Oh, this yeah, is where huge. many, not all, but many of, I think, particularly the multi-state operators, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they see retail as an outlet for their products. Yeah. And so you know, they haven't necessarily put a ton of time into developing that retail experience. And you know, and I would say, you know, most of them would want to say, well, if you ask them, would say, yeah, we want about 70% of the products on our shelves to be our own products. We kind of take the opposite approach, right? We would rather about 30% of the, of the products on our shelves be our own product. Mm-hmm. Because people want a wide array of products. So they, they, customers tell you that routinely. They want a wide variety of different kinds of products. There are products out there that are really popular. If that's what a customer wants, we want to have that in our store. Yeah. And so you know, it, 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 that's part of it, right? Is making sure you have the product variety at the store. But really, it's about the overall experience like, that people have when they come into that store, that they feel really good. And I think it's especially important for these newer adopters. Because right? you know, a lot of these folks, they, they, maybe they, they've used a little bit here and there in the black market, but they're, you know, most of these folks are folks that were not comfortable going to a quote unquote dealer. Mm-hmm. And so even if they liked cannabis, they probably used it every once in a while when, you know, their cannabis consuming friend had some, but they weren't really comfortable going to the black market to get their own. They want to come into an environment that feels 
I would say almost overly welcoming and almost goes out of its way to to make sure that folks know that they're not doing anything wrong when they walk into one of these stores. And in fact, they should feel welcome. They should feel valued, feel respected. I think that's important. We really we kind of lead with retail, as I mentioned. And and this has been a big part of our sort of guiding philosophy is everybody that walks into one of these stores should feel great. And so it, it impacts the way that we hire. We say when we interview folks, uh, they have to be uh, happy, humble, and hardworking. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they can't check those three boxes, like they don't even make it through the first interview. Yep. Um, you know, they've got to love talking about cannabis to people. They've got to be willing to come in to be part of, of, a, of a family type environment in the store itself where everybody works there feels you know, they love each other and they feel like, I mean, it sounds corny, but it's true. Oh yeah. You need a culture. Almost like a family unit. Absolutely. Absolutely, Because that reflects on the people who come into the stores and then the aesthetic, right? Like we, we go with a, a, a higher end, you know, higher end aesthetic, not super high end that it's off putting, but Mm -hmm. really nice, uh, you know, uh, clean fixtures, right. Clean type environment. Close with on this point is the one thing that we do is in, in most of these States, uh, particularly in the Eastern half of the country, they require that you have a separate waiting room for your dispensary floor. Um, and so, you know, people come in, you got to, wait in the area. You got to have to get buzzed through a secure door before you go to the dispensary floor. And what that winds up with is are, are a lot of dispensaries that kind of feel clinical. Yeah, right? exactly. And part of that is that they're trying to appease the regulators in a medical environment, but also just the idea of you wait in a waiting room, you get buzzed in to go and make your purchase. It just lends itself to a more clinical type feel. Mm-hmm. And our philosophy on this is that, you know, first of all, people don't like going to the doctor. Uh, right. <laughs> Generally, so yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't, it's not, it's not something people look forward to. Yeah, it's not, it's not an association enjoy. you it's, want to make. Yeah. Right. And so we don't want people to feel like they're in a, a, a medical clinic when they come into the stores, right? We want them to feel really good. And I also really dislike this idea that you have to get buzzed in through a secure door to make your purchase. It's kind of like, you know, wait here, the drug deal is going on behind yeah, exactly. that wall. We don't yeah. want anybody to see what's happening back there. Yeah. And so to comply with the regulations, we do a giant glass wall that separates the dispensary floor from the waiting room area. So there's no visual separation at all. Mm-hmm. There's a physical separation um, and it's, you know, it's reinforced glass. It's basically bulletproof glass. And these are unfortunately quite expensive walls. You have to yeah, build. I'm sure. But it's, but to us, it's worth it because when somebody walks in, it feels like an open floor plan and psychologically, it, it psychologically, it, it gives off the, the effect that there's nothing to hide here. Right. When someone gets buzzed in through that door, they're not hiding anything back there. Everything is out in the open. Now, if somebody has an issue that's very personal mm-hmm. and they want to have a private conversation, so we have a private consultation room they can sure. go to with a, with a trained staff member. But other than that, everything's out in the open. And we think that that creates an environment that people enjoy being a part of. And I think that, you know, that's going to really help drive the retail experience. And I think we see that in the performance of our stores, and in particular, how far people are willing to drive and how many dispensaries sure. they're willing to pass to come to a mission branded dispenser, which is our retail brand. Yeah. No, and I think that's smart. I think that that's kind of the next generation of, you know, the cannabis industry is really kind of focusing on the different customer segments and the personas and, and creating experiences, you know, but both brand and in-person customer experiences that are going to uh, tailor to these different works. And I think you're going to see a lot of segmentation and, and kind of bifurcation of the of the industry this way. So Chris, this has been great. We're going to hit time here. If people want to find out more about you, about Forefront, about the work you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah. So to find out about us, uh, you can go to ForefrontVentures.com. It's the number four, uh, numeral four, and then uh, ForefrontVentures.com. To find out if there's a mission store in your area, you can go to MissionCan.com. We're currently open in Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, Pennsylvania, with stores coming soon in Arkansas, Michigan, and, uh, and, and Arizona. 
and probably some others yeah, <laughs> exactly. that are, that are <laughs> probably not, not official, not official yet. Um, uh, so, but, uh, so you can find, you, know, you can find out more about us there. I would also say if, if folks are interested in the advocacy side of things that I've talked about, mm-hmm. um, go to ssdp.org, uh, it's for students for sensible drug policy.org and check out the, the really important work that the, uh, the, this new generation of young activists is doing to you know, help bring about further reform and, uh, and to protect all of the gains that we've made, uh, you know, over the last 20 years or so. Awesome. And I will make sure that all those links are in the show notes so people can click through and get those. Chris, this has been a pleasure. Great conversation. I've learned a lot. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.